Hi, and welcome to the Bits and Trees podcast. I'm your host, Matt Machuga, and with me today is the host of the Full Stack Radio podcast, Adam Wathen. Hi, Adam. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, thanks for coming on. How you been? Uh, pretty good, you know, keeping busy. I've got a bit of a brutal cold right now, so forgive the uh, nasally tone, but yeah, I'm excited to chat with you. Um, for those of you who haven't listened to the podcast or followed along with the various things that you've released, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. So I'm a, a full stack developer who's kind of spent a lot of time working in the, the Laravel community, which is a PHP framework, kind of very much like Rails. I also do a lot of work with Vue.js. I'm the author of a, a CSS framework called uh, Tailwind CSS. And currently I make a full-time living uh, creating and publishing uh, educational content like ebooks and video courses and stuff like that. Excellent. So can you give us a, a walkthrough of how your career has gone in, say, the last five years, if I'm gauging the timeline right here? Yeah, sure. So um, five years is basically my entire uh, programming career, more or less, actually. So I came out of, uh, I went to college for software engineering. Uh, I left college and got a job at an uh, agency consultancy, um, creating custom web apps for clients, uh, working a lot uh, all in PHP. So we did some Zend framework stuff and transitioned over time into mostly Laravel stuff. I worked for a, a couple other agencies uh, after that. And then about uh, just over two years ago, I released uh, my first book, which is uh, Refactoring to Collections, which is a book that teaches sort of some functional programming principles um, in PHP designed to help you clean up a lot of procedural code. Uh, I released that and that did really well, uh, surprisingly well actually, and uh, made enough to let me kind of leave my job and focus on uh, creating more educational uh, content. So uh, since then I released a, a course on test-driven development for Laravel developers and a course on advanced component design uh, with Vue.js. And that kind of brings us to today. So how hard was it for you to make that decision to make the leap from I'm happily full-time employed, I get a steady paycheck, I know what to expect, into now I'm on my own and anything could come at me next week? Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was harder, it was harder to convince my wife than it was to convince myself. Um, I, I, at the time I had an idea for another product that I thought would be more successful than the first one and I think that was the only thing that gave me the confidence to kind of to kind of make the jump because the book that I released was kind of meant to be a kind of a quick project just to kind of get my feet wet with the idea of you know trying to make something and, and sell it online and I originally planned for it to only be like a really short kind of like mini book you know what I mean like a 40 to 50 page sort of thing that I could kind of bang out in a couple of weeks but it turned out to be like 160 pages plus a bunch of bonus content and stuff and, and ended up taking me a few months. Uh, but even then, like that, the whole idea was just to kind of test the waters and, and get a little bit of practice putting something out there uh, because I had this idea for this test-driven development course that I wanted to do um, that I knew people uh, were really hungry for. Uh, but I wanted to try something smaller first. So when I saw that that was successful, I thought, you know what? going to be a lot of work to put together this testing course and the only way I'm really going to be able to pull it off is if I can work on it full-time instead of just uh, nights and weekends and I just released this book it did really well we got a bunch of money in the bank um, if I don't do it now then probably that money is just going to slowly peter away on home renovations and stuff like that over time and two years from now it'll be like 
we never had that, you know, um, mm-hmm. surplus income show up. So I thought, uh, if I want to try this, probably now is the time uh, to do it and take advantage of the situation. So did that testing course did uh, better than I expected as well. And then I was able to, to work on this, this view course. So, uh, yeah, I just kind of, I always try to stay one project ahead. I try to always make sure I know what the next thing I'm going to be working on is to kind of keep my stress levels low, uh, because that is the challenge of, of working for yourself. You can't just, you know, um, what I work on and what I put out there is entirely up to me. Whereas at a job, you just sort of trust that your managers and the people in charge are going to have more work for you next week. And they're kind of the ones deciding what you should be doing and you get that steady paycheck. Uh, but for me, I have to make sure that I'm always figuring out ways uh, to provide more value to people uh, because I kind of am responsible for that that whole chain now. So it's a, uh, yeah, there's some stress there. It's a big change, uh, but for the most part, it's been a, it's been awesome. You get a lot of freedom and flexibility and it's really cool to be able to kind of work on your own stuff, make your own decisions to kind of get the full satisfaction of putting that stuff out there and seeing people enjoy it and stuff like that. So yeah, it's been a really fun ride. Um, one other thing I want to point out about this is you've actually made some blog posts on uh, covering the, the whole process. I think you made it a couple months after the fact, or maybe like a year after the fact, but yep. you kind of covered your whole process of, I want to make a book. Now I made a book. Now how do I get it out there and things like that? Yep. Um, yeah. Can you kind of talk about your decision to go public with all that information? Yeah, sure. So when I was working on the book, I did a lot of um, kind of research and looking around, trying to find out like how how to do this sort of thing well, how to release an ebook and have your best chances of you know succeeding with it, making it worth your while. And I stumbled onto a bunch of content by a guy named Nathan Barry who runs a SaaS company called ConvertKit, which is email marketing automation software. And he had uh, released a couple books and stuff like that and shared all his numbers and his um, strategies and things that he had done, as well as kind of referenced the people that he learned from. And, uh, you know, he had a podcast where he interviewed other people who created educational content and their approaches to marketing it and, you know, launching their stuff. Um, and one of the one of the really big factors uh, in the success of this stuff is just the idea of working in public and just making sure that um, you're kind of talking about what you're doing and giving people kind of the behind the curtain look at what you're working on as, as you're building it. And I know like I've always really enjoyed reading that sort of stuff from people. So I thought, um, you know, maybe it'd be a good idea to share kind of the behind the scenes look at uh, at my launch and how that stuff went to because if I got value from reading other people's stories maybe someone else would get value out of reading mine it felt kind of selfish to leverage all this information from people who shared everything that they had learned and then you know not put the effort into doing that myself for maybe the people coming behind me so so one of the things that I found interesting and um, it's like one of those brave moves that you have to make is that you disclosed damn near everything in your in your blog post you're like this is how much money i made week one this is what i made week two this is how things tapered off over time yep um was that scary at all for you to put that information out there um a little bit i mean when you do something that ends up being successful it kind of 
it feels like a little braggy or whatever to be putting information out there like that. And sometimes you worry that it's going to make people look at you a different way. Like my biggest fear with this sort of thing is like being seen as someone who's just trying to like make money on the internet. Um, when really like all I really want to do is make awesome content and help people and make tools and stuff like that. And the best way to be able to do that all the day, all the time is to find out some sort of way to get paid for doing that stuff. Right. So, um, you know, uh, at the core of it, like I'm doing what I do because I like doing it, not because I'm trying to extract the most money out of it as possible. So when you're successful with something and you share the numbers and stuff, it can kind of look, I don't know, you, you worry that it might, it might kind of, uh, taint people's impression of, of what you're doing or, or whatever. And it also, um, I think can, I don't know what the best, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase it, but you know, it, it can inspire a lot of people to want to do that sort of thing for themselves, uh, which mm-hmm. is great. But I, I think it can also give some people the wrong idea that, you know, this sort of thing is like really easy or whatever. And then all of a sudden everyone thinks, Oh wow, this guy made a book and he made this much money. I'm going to make a book and make this much money. And you know, it's not as, it's not as simple as that. And I don't think that's the right attitude to have either, because I think the reason that my stuff has ever been successful is, is because of the fact that, you know, I'm genuinely interested in the topics that I'm trying to, to, to teach and really I'm passionate about those sorts of things too. Um, so for me, my success has kind of come from just focusing on the things that I care about, sharing what I'm excited about with people. And that excitement is usually pretty contagious. And then when I put something together that I can actually release for people to to purchase, people are often, you know, excited to pick it up. So Mm -hmm. I think, look, um, sometimes you can kind of just inspire people to care a little bit too much about the, the monetary side of things, which I think, uh, Maybe it works for some people, but, but for me, I don't think it, it ends up working out very well if you're just focused on the financial aspects and not like uh, the foundational steps before it. So, I think it can lead to a number of um, different insights on it. So some people do view it as like being a, a humble brag, like I'm putting all my numbers out there, look at how I'm successful. Yeah. Um, some people look at it from the perspective of, you know, I can make money, like you said. Um, and then there's a perspective of the people who genuinely want to do the same thing. Um, it is motivational to them in the sense that they feel like they can actually make an income off it. Yeah. Um, you know, like there is a chance that I can make this work if I work hard. Yeah. And, um, you know, for me where I like to produce content, but I've never not had a stable job. Uh Um, you know, it's at least motivation that like I could give this a try in my my spare time and like try to make a course or something like with, uh, with bits and trees. Yep. You made it work. I figure I can at least do this in my spare time. Yeah. Um, so I, I like the transparency. I like seeing process. Um, it always entertains and enlightens me seeing how someone else does their work or goes about figuring out if they can feasibly approach some sort of work. Um, so I think you putting the content out there is great. Um, I watched some of your, your live feeds after the fact, um, they've always been entertaining. Um, I've never looked at the chat, but I'm assuming those have to be pretty pretty interesting. Yeah, they usually are. <laughs> Any of that kind of content that's out there in public, I like it. Watching somebody else work through a problem that they have to think through, um, like a programming concept, seems really entertaining to me because you always pick up all these little tidbits. 
Um, yeah. All the destroy all software <laughs> videos from Gary Bernhardt years yep. ago. I still find stuff in those. I've watched them like a hundred times. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. like I love stuff like that for sure. Um, so you putting out the whole process of switching over to um, an entrepreneur life is, um, you know, I think it's a powerful thing. Yeah. Appreciate that. Um, so let's see, I kind of want to walk through some of your, some of the courses that you've released over time or just some of your products. Sure. Um, so your book refactoring to collections, I thought that one was great because it kind of teaches people, um, all the highlights of, uh, that that's probably not right to say it teaches a lot of highlights of what the Ruby language has to offer in the standard library. Yep. And it kind of shows that in terms of PHP. Yeah. Um, and you know, like it can be argued that's part of small talk. It's part of JavaScript these days, but it was an important thing for a lot of PHP developers to see, I think. Yeah. Um, and then test driven Laravel, this one, this one took you a long time to put out there. How was that whole process? Way too long. Um, yeah. So I had this idea to put together this testing course and I, I think what I wanted to do that I thought was different from what a lot of, a lot of other resources out there, um, were structured like, is instead of making it like really focused on like this is how you test this situation, this is how you test this situation. I wanted it to be like more of a holistic resource on like this is how to build an application from scratch using like a test first approach. Uh, because I think just showing like how to test situation A, B, Z, whatever is very different than like actually growing a piece of software with tests, refactoring deleting tests, adding new tests, change, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of stuff that you just can't learn just looking at something that's focused on showing you how to write a test for some piece of code, like actually building an app over time, evolving it, adding new features, updating tests that are now have to be updated because this new feature was introduced. Just showing the whole workflow, I think was something that was missing out there. What I didn't really realize at the time was just like how ambitious of a project that actually is. Um, So it was a lot of work trying to figure out like what is the example application that we're going to build. And in this case, I chose like um, like a simplified ticketing application, sort of like Eventbrite or something where you can. uh, The idea was that like local concert promoters could post their concerts um, and collect ticket sales for them, basically. So it was intended to be pretty real world in the in the sense that it interacted with like Stripe and took credit cards and showed how to test all these kind of, you know, annoying real world situations you run into where you have to work with third party stuff and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I, st- I started working on that course in the summer of 2016, I think, and released it in November as like an early access thing. So I had about 40 lessons done and I released those and then I just kept working on new content and releasing it every week or two until it was done Uh, but it wasn't done until january of 2018 (laughs) Mm -hmm. so it took like over a year of extra work after i'd already kind of opened it up in like the early access period for it all to be done it ended up being like almost 170 lessons like 22 hours of content so um yeah i'm really i'm really proud of how it turned out it's like a really comprehensive resource uh, but there's pros and cons to both kind of approaches to structuring it um, you have to it's a it's a big commitment to kind of work through that whole thing and because it's kind of structured in like a build an app from scratch way if you just want to like learn some particular topic or get help with one particular thing it can be hard to find the part in the course where that's covered because it's not really organized by topic it's organized sort of like a timeline of building a, a application at a company right 
Um, so I think that the best way to experience it was sort of being in the early access group of people and being able to watch new lessons as they were released because that kind of uh, kind of drifted out to you in like a digestible fashion. Um, but I'm hoping to do like a, a 2.0 version of the course sometime in the next year or so, probably late next year, um, where I can uh, kind of redo it for the updated version of Laravel, keep the original course there as kind of like the worked example, and then maybe supplement it with a bunch of shorter, more focused lessons on, you know, testing cues, testing mail, testing... Um, so you can kind of just jump to the topic you want while still having that that big kind of walkthrough resource uh, as right. well. So, yeah, that was a uh, a big project and a stressful one, too, because it, it kind of sucks to take people's money um, for something that's not finished and then have to deliver on that promise. Because once people have paid you for something, it doesn't feel right to to cut the scope or anything like that like you might do on a normal project, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that I would ever release something in early access again at this point because it was so, <laughs> so stressful and just like so inflexible in terms of, uh, okay, these people paid for this. I promised I was going to cover this topic, even though it's already 10 times longer than I wanted it to be. I feel obligated to do it. Um, I think I'd rather just wait till it's all done so that I have kind of creative control over the whole thing and then put it out there when I'm happy with the the finished product. Because then you can actually celebrate the launch instead of it being like a more of a stressful situation. You have like a thousand people buy something on day one. And it's like, man, now I have a thousand promises I have to keep, you know? So mm-hmm. uh, for diff- some people that might motivate them to, to finish it. Um, for me, it definitely motivated me to, to finish it, but also it's just a big source of stress. So uh, yeah, it could be hard. How do you think the course would have been different if you had not done early access? I think it would have been shorter is the main thing. Uh, It probably wouldn't have covered as much as it did. So it might not, not that it wouldn't have been as, as good or anything like that, but I just don't think I would have uh, had the grit to slog through it for a year. Um, You know, if uh, I wasn't obligated to, I would have figured out a way to shorten some things and cut it down a bit so that I could get it out there. For me, I think like, three months is kind of like the absolute limit for a project for me in terms of like staying highly motivated to, to work on it. You know what I mean? I have to figure out ways to break things up into these kind of smaller things, uh, so that the, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel, you know, otherwise it can feel like a death March. I I think you got the, the value out of it though. Um, I've, I've only seen good praise of that course. Um, I think that's probably because you had so much content packed into it and it was so narrational where it was kind of following the flow of we're building this app from start to finish and here are the things that could come up along the way. Yeah. 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 I think it turned out really well and people, you know, pretty unanimously um, thought it was great and I've got lots of great feedback from people saying like, you know, I've never had the first clue how to start testing until I watched this and it's just so practical and real world. Um, which was which was really nice to hear because uh, it spoke to a lot of the same pains that, that I kind of dealt with when I was learning how to test. Like everything out there is like, here's how you test a calculator. It's like, okay, yeah, I get that. That makes sense. Testing seems pretty easy. And then like you go to your job and it's like, okay, we need to write a feature to export this report as a PDF. And it's like, how do I write a test for that? That's, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or 
I have to write a test to, uh, or we have to um, optimize user uploaded images on the server. How the hell do I write a test for that? Like everything in the real world is just so much more complicated than a lot of the, the stuff that you see in kind of introductory tutorials online. So a lot of time they give you like this false confidence and then you get dropped into the a real life situation and all of a sudden you feel like you don't know what you're doing. So I tried to give people the tools to actually test the stuff that they actually need to build uh, in real world applications. And I think, uh, I think I did a pretty good job at that. So I'm pretty, pretty stoked with how it turned out for sure. Yeah. I think that was a much needed asset. Um, real world testing is the bane of every author and everything else out there. Like, how do I make this uh, something that people will actually use compared yeah. to like, you know, teaching the first five minute basics of testing, which is, sure. it's still a feat, but it doesn't help you when you're testing Stripe. And even just things like, what's the first test that you're supposed to write on an app? You know what I mean? Like you're trying to build an app with TDD. Okay. So I've scaffolded out a, a new Rails or Laravel project or whatever. There's no code yet. I'm not allowed to write code until I write a test. What do I do? That can be like a really paralyzing situation. So trying to show people how to kind of get the ball rolling because once you have that momentum going, um, gets a lot easier, but it can be hard when you're starting from a blank canvas. So, yeah. Right. So how does this course differ from your new view course? So, um, the view course, I mean, in terms of content, of, of course it's different. Um, it's not a testing course or anything. It's just about, uh, how to build components that are more reusable and easier to maintain and, and simpler. And also generally like more fun uh, to work on. So a lot of the course covers like different strategies and patterns for building components that that do things you might not have traditionally thought would be the job of a component. So covers a lot of use cases like creating like what I call data provider components, which is like a, a view component that doesn't actually render any UI on its own, but only acts as a source of data for some child component. So you may create a component that fetches JSON from a server and exposes that through a scoped slot and can pass that as a prop down to a child component, similar to what people do in React with like um, render props and stuff like that. So some of just like the more advanced kind of um, component patterns and, and ideas um, that aren't really covered in the documentation and stuff like that. So that was kind of the goal um, with that course. In terms of how it was different from the testing course, um, from like a from like a creating the course perspective, mm-hmm. um, I, I learned my lesson about the early access thing and didn't do that this time around. Instead, opted to do the whole thing, get it done uh, before releasing it. And uh, I also really wanted this course to be something that I got done in a really short period of time because I had another project that I needed to start working on in the summer, but I had a little bit of downtime. And um, I wanted to, I'd been wanting to do this course and I thought, okay, what sort of constraints can I put on myself to kind of figure out a way to get this course done in the next, say, two months? I think that's the amount of time that it basically took me. Like, of course, I learned and practiced all the, the, the ideas in the course from just working with Vue for years. But um, yeah, so it I took me two months to kind of put together the curriculum, figure out all the examples, kind of organize everything, then record the videos and, and put it out there. So uh, that was the biggest difference between that and the testing course was like, this was like a hyper kind of um, compressed timeline, whereas the testing course took, took forever. 
and they had um you know similar amounts of success in the launch period so um i'm pretty happy with that uh i think um constraints are an extremely powerful uh thing i think uh, that was the other problem with the early access thing when you don't have a deadline for something you know things just take take longer so so because you brought up the 2.0 on the laravel course um the front end world seems to change a lot faster than back end. Yeah. So how do you plan on keeping the view course up to date over time? Is that something you're worried about? Or are you just going to let it, um, let it run until something really ages out? Uh, what are your plans? Yeah. So, so far, um, I mean, the course only came out in May, so it's still totally recent, you know, everything is up to date still. Um, but I guess I'll have to wait and see what sort of breaking changes happen. Um, Mm. as soon as something in a video becomes wrong, then I'm going to have to look at it. But, um, one thing that I tried to do with this course that I, that make, makes it different from the testing course too, is the testing course is like a very linear thing, right? It's a story. Every lesson builds on the previous lesson all the way through with the view course. I tried to make everything, all the lessons sort of as isolated as, as I could. There's some lessons that are multiple lessons kind of broken up just to make them easier to consume um, that use the same example. But for the most part, I I tried to keep each kind of topic uh, kind of isolated purely for this purpose so that if something comes up where they change how a certain feature works, hopefully I only have to re-record two or three videos instead of having to re-record the whole thing. Because with the testing one, you know, if something changes in lesson 75, I have to record re-record probably 40 lessons or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep, it yep, can be, yep. It's brutal. So yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but worst case scenario, if I have to re-record the whole thing, I kept the course a lot shorter this time. It's like four hours. So yeah, more manageable. Do you have any strategies on how to support multiple versions at the same time? Uh, this is something that I still get requests for like old videos I made on Envato. Um, they will come back and say like, I would like a new version of this, but I still want that old version around um, in case somebody's using a legacy version. Yeah. Um, are you planning on updating the courses in place? Would you keep a legacy version around? That's a good question. I haven't really thought about it, but I have seen examples of people do that. So Michael Hardle, who does like railstutorial.org or railstutorial.com. I can't remember uh, the URL, but we can throw it in the show notes. Every time a new version of Rails comes out, he redoes this tutorial or updates it, but he keeps all the previous ones because, you know, of course, there's so many applications in production that are still on Rails 2 or Rails 3. So you uh, get brought onto a job out of college. Maybe you haven't used Rails a ton and you want to learn how to work with this code base. Well, of course, it'd be ideal if you could work with a resource that was using the same version of Rails that you are at your job. So it's nice that that stuff's kept around. So I think um, for the view course, I would definitely probably keep both both versions. Um, I built like my own course platform software too, mm-hmm. which I think all of us nerds would probably be tempted to do. I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never done that. <laughs> so it gives me a little bit of flexibility there. So, you know, I can figure out a way to um, throw a drop down on the UI where you can choose like between the two versions and, and watch them or whatever. But yeah, I definitely think um, it's a better idea to make both, to make them all available. Like if you re-record something, keep it all available. 
um, because you never know what version someone's going to be using. Right. So, yeah. Possibly the last topic for the day. I just want to talk about the evolution of full stack radio. Sure. Uh, can you tell us about how that started and uh, how it's gone through <laughs> multiple iterations over the years? Yeah. So um, my initial motivation for starting the podcast was, um, you know, I'm uh, I just I'm really I get really, really hyper into any hobby that I sort of pick up, right, or or anything that I get into is in programming um, is one of those things. I've been into programming my whole life, but when I when I decided to, I went back to college as sort of like a second career thing after working in a totally different industry and got hyper back into it a lot. And um, I just found myself in this position where there was all these people online that I was reading their content and learning from, uh, but I just wanted to, I just had questions for everyone. You know what I mean? Like, there's just so many people out there that I wanted to be able to ask a couple questions to and get some clarifying answers on things. And I knew like, it felt weird to just like email someone out of the blue and be like, Hey, do you have time to like answer some of my questions on Skype or whatever? Cause no one's going to say yes to that. And no one has time for that. But I thought, you know what, maybe if I start a podcast, I can invite these people on as guests and interview them and then I could get my questions answered. So the whole motivation for the podcast was just to be able to talk to some of the people that I've been learning from and ask them questions and, uh, and learn from them. So, um, yeah, so I started the podcast to do that. I started by interviewing people that I kind of was already friends with a little bit that I knew would, would come on and say yes, because, you know, at the beginning when you don't have any episodes, it's hard to get big name people to agree to come talk to you. But I got pretty lucky in that, I think episode five or something, I was able to get Ryan Singer from Basecamp on. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was actually the, if I had to like name one person that I really started the podcast to talk to, it would have been him. And I got him to come on the podcast and we talked about a lot of cool stuff. And then I mentioned him at the, at at the end of the interview when we were just talking after we had stopped recording that it'd be great to have uh, David Heinemeyer Hansen come on sometime uh, because it, it was somewhat, recently after his like uh his rails cough keynote the really famous tdd is dead one right the one that that really got people kind of going and i thought it'd be cool to talk to him about uh you know how he builds software and ryan was like yeah you know what he probably would do it he does lots of podcasts and stuff and i was like okay because i never i never even thought to bother emailing him so i sent david an email asked him if he wanted to be on the podcast he replied like two hours later yeah sure he that dude answers email faster than anyone else I I've ever spoken to. And he must be like the busiest dude who gets the most email out of anyone I've ever corresponded with. So it's, it's pretty impressive. But after I had David on the podcast, that gave me a little bit more, uh, clout, I think to be able to invite more and more other big name, not big name, but just, you know, people who wouldn't know who I am guests on the podcast. And, you know, over time I was able to get a, a lot of cool people on like, even like Kent Beck, for example, who's like a longtime programming hero of mine, I was able to get on the podcast. So yeah, the podcast started as just like an interview format thing, just interviewing kind of my programming heroes and stuff like that. Um, for a little while there in the middle, I started working on a, a SaaS application that kind of got canned, but uh, we did a little kind of mini season where me and uh, David Hemphill, a friend of mine who also works on his own products, were kind of co-hosting it just talking about what we were working on and uh, then kind of went back into the interview format after I kind of stopped working on that product. So yeah, it's still going strong. It's been like three years, I think now, maybe, maybe almost four, four. I don't know. We started in 2014. 
um, end of 2014. So almost up to a hundred episodes been pretty regular ish bi-weekly. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's been good. That's been like probably, uh, the, the biggest kind of most consistent kind of thing that I've been doing content wise throughout my, my programming career. So it would feel kind of weird to just stop doing it now after putting it out every two weeks for four years. So. Right. Well, it seems to have a pretty big stretch. Um, I mentioned to a coworker at work who's on our product team that I'd be uh, interviewing you today. And he immediately like recognized full stack radio. He said, wait, I've listened to that before and That's went cool. out and he found the Ryan singer episode nice. and started geeking out really hard about that. So he, um, he enjoys full stack radio and he is not that involved with tech. Cool. Um, he works with tech products all the time, but he doesn't do the engineering concepts yeah, of it, yeah, yeah. but he still went out and found this one. Nice. Yeah. It's fun because, um, you know, it's, uh, it covers a pretty wide range of topics. Like, um, again, the whole thing is basically just like, a a platform for me to ask people questions about whatever I'm interested in at the time. And, uh, as a developer, I'm pretty, you know, I spread myself out across a lot of different technologies and a lot of different areas. So, you know, I've had people on to talk about like DevOps and I've also had people on to talk about marketing, you know what I mean? So, um, I kind of think as like the, the target audience for the show is just being, you know, geeks who like to build their own products by themselves, you know, so people who have to kind of be responsible for everything. If mm-hmm. you like to build your own stuff, then, um, you know, the topics are going to be hopefully interesting to you. There's, there's a little bit of bias towards certain technologies because those are the ones I work with. So, you know, there's quite a few episodes talking about Laravel stuff or view stuff. Um, yeah, it covers the whole kind of stack all the way from product development, marketing, all the way back to unit testing, DevOps, and stuff like that. So it's been pretty fun. Great. Uh, do you have any insight into your next product? Do you have anything in the pipeline right now? Yeah, I do actually. So um, the next thing that I'm working on is uh, a book plus a bunch of other stuff with a friend of mine, Steve Shoger, who's a designer that lives locally around where I live. And we've been friends for years. Uh, so we're working on a design for developers sort of product called Refactoring UI. Uh, so for the past couple of years, we've been working together, sort of putting out sort of tips on Twitter and uh, and articles and stuff like that to help developers get better at design, um, but sort of filtered through a developer's perspective, which I think is what makes it a little bit unique. I think, um, you know, sort of stereotypically or whatever, developers and designers sort of think about things a little bit differently. You know, some of the things that are obvious to someone who's like a creative, artistically minded person are not as obvious to someone who's a lot more analytical, um, like a lot of programmers are. So by working closely together with Steve for the last few years on side projects and stuff like that, there's been a lot of opportunities for for me to sit next to him while we're working on something and see him make something look nice and then be able to kind of tell him like, you know, that what you just did there, I learned a lot from that and here's why. And this is why that makes sense to me as like an analytically minded developer brained person. And we've been able to sort of, um, you know, use our ability to collaborate and take some of the things that are second nature to a lot of talented visual designers and kind of boil that down into really practical tactics that make sense to, uh, to developers. So now we're working on taking sort of all the ideas we've had and a lot of the content that we've put out and kind of consolidating it into a really thorough resource for uh, developers who want 
a really good way to improve their design stuff. So I think the book is going to be good. It's uh, the format is really inspired by the 37 singles books where every chapter is kind of like standalone, you know? So if you've read rework by 37 signals, for example, you can just flip to any page and just kind of read that essay on its own. You don't need to like read the book start to finish. Um, so it should make a, so we're kind of taking that same format with this design book. So it's not going to be like a textbook sort of thing. You can just sort of flip to a page and there might be an essay there explaining like, this is why you should use HSL instead of hex and explaining how that, you know, way of thinking about color works. And there'll be like three pages long or, Here's a chapter on like creating depth in user interfaces. Everything will kind of just be independent. So you can just flip to whatever you want, learn something. You don't have to commit to like sitting down and slogging through a big 250 page book or whatever. So yeah, it should be cool. Uh, we're hoping to get that out in, we were hoping November, but it's August now and uh, still got a lot of work to do, but we'll see November, December. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of the next thing. So you can check that out at refactoringui.com. Excellent. Um, so since you're still overcoming a cold, I promise I'll let you go after this. How did it feel having someone make an egghead IO course of Tailwind CSS? That was really cool for sure. Um, yeah, that, that whole experience with that project has been awesome. Um, I kind of, uh, I made it, I kind of released it only because I was doing these live streams where I was using like a really early version of what became Tailwind CSS, which is really just a bunch of less files that I like copy and paste it between projects, my own little starter kit for projects. And I would do like some video where we'd be like doing some Laravel TDD stuff. And in the chat, in the live streams, all the questions would be like, what CSS framework is this? What CSS framework is this? And I never even really, you know, occurred to me that this might be something that people cared about, but everyone was curious about the CSS stuff. So you know, eventually committed to putting that together into like a real library that we released. And, uh, you know, lots of people have been using it. And uh, it's it's crazy to see people build like real websites with it. Like, I think it's being used on like a Procter & Gamble site now, which is, it's like crazy to see big <laughs> brands using some like random thing wow. that I put out on GitHub, right? And then Simon, uh, who made that course on Egghead, released like the, the Tailwind course on Egghead. It's I don't know. It's a really cool feeling to see like something that you made. Other people are excited about it, teaching other people how to use it and stuff like that. So I don't know. I'm hoping to be able to spend a lot more time working on uh, the framework and like the ecosystem around it because uh, it seems like a lot of people are getting a lot of value from it. So it'd be cool to, to be able to flesh that out a little bit more and create more resources and, and stuff around it. So we'll see where that goes, but that's been really, really fun so far. Yeah, it seems to have been met with uh, great reception so far. Yeah. All right. Um, so if people want to follow along with you, how best can they do that? Probably the best way is just on Twitter. So I'm just at Adam Wathen on Twitter. Um, I, I'm usually sharing what I'm working on and uh, and stuff there. So uh, check me out there. If you're interested in any of the live streaming stuff, um, I live stream on YouTube, which is controversial. Everyone seems to like Twitch, but... I don't do a lot of gaming, so I don't really understand the real benefits of it or whatever. YouTube works fine for me, but you can go to youtube.com slash Adam Wathen. And if you subscribe to my channel there, then you can get notifications whenever I start a live stream and stuff like that. But yeah, that's probably the best way to keep up with what I'm doing. Perfect. Well, I'll throw links to this and all of your other work in the show notes. Um, that way people can access them at any time. Um, so thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. I know it's probably been rough with the cold. No, man. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. Thanks for listening. Thanks.